Hello and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 28. I'm Hector Marrero. And I'm Kip Clark. Today's topic is a book called Strangely Like War, written by Derek Jensen and George Draffin. Now to give some background, Derek Jensen is part of this movement called Deep Green Environmentalism. And the idea behind Deep Green Environmentalism is that mainstream environmentalism isn't having the impact necessary to really change how the world is going. And so he advocates against industrialized civilization, which is something that not too many people do in this day. So I'm going to be reading an excerpt from this book. I'm going to be reading the first chapter, Deforestation, and then the the following discussion will be me and Kip speaking off the top of our heads. This topic interests me because I personally love going out into the woods. I love taking walks and I love nature. I'm from New York City, but after being lucky enough to go to a place like Kenyon College and my high school, which also had a lot of woods, I've fallen deeply in love with nature and love to talk about it. So here we go. The quote it opens up with is, it was strangely like war. They attacked the forest as if it were an enemy to be pushed back from the beachheads, driven into the hills, broken into the patches and wiped out. Many operators thought they were not only making lumber, but liberating the land from the trees. That was a quote by Murray Morgan. The very day we wrote the final words of this book, scientists declared that yet another subspecies of tiger had gone extinct in the wild, with only captives remaining, so discouraged, they're dosed with Viagra to try to make them breed. Gone extinct. Such a passive way to put it, as though we know no cause, can assign no responsibility. It's almost as though we were to say that victims of murder passed away or that victims of arson decided to move. The South China tiger joins its cousins, the Caspian tiger, Bali tiger, and Javan tiger, all victims of logging, road building, and the leveling of forests under this excuse or that. The other tigers will almost undoubtedly join them soon. It doesn't matter much to the tigers whether the forests are cut because Mao decided that man must conquer nature, or because the World Bank decided that man must develop natural resources. The forests are cut. The tigers are dead. The forests of the world are in bad shape. About three quarters of the world's original forests have been cut. Most of that is in the past century. Much of what remains is in three nations, Russia, Canada, and Brazil. 95% of the original forests of the United States are gone. We don't know how fast the surviving forests are disappearing. We don't know how many acres are cut each year in the United States, nor how much of that is old growth. We have estimates, and we'll give them throughout the book, but the paucity of information even on present levels of cutting reveals more than it hides. It reveals how desperately out of control is the whole situation. The United States Forest Service and the Bureau of Land Management sell trees from public forests, meaning they belong to you to big timber corporations at prices that often do not even cover the administrative costs of preparing the sales, much less reflect full market value. For example, in the Tongass National Forest in southeastern Alaska, 400-year-old hemlock, spruce, and cedar are sold to huge timber corporations for less than the price of a cheeseburger. And taxpayers pay for the building of the logging roads as well. 
the Forest Service loses hundreds of million dollars a year on its timber sale programs. In other words, if you pay taxes, you pay to deforest your own land. If you live in the West, Southwest, South, Northeast, Midwest, Alaska, or anywhere else in the United States where there are or were forests, chances are good you've seen or walked clear cuts. Sometimes square mile after square mile, cut, scraped, compacted, and herbicided. You've seen lone trees silhouetted on ridgelines, and you've seen once dense forests reduced to a handful of trees per acre. You've suspected and later learned that these few trees were left so the Forest Service and big timber corporations could maintain that they did not clear cut this particular piece of ground. And maybe you came back another time and saw that the survivors too were gone. You've probably driven highways lined by trees, then pulled over to look around, only to discover that just like in old westerns, where false fronts hid the absence of real stores, you've been sold a bill of goods. A few yards of trees separate the road from yet more clear cuts. This fringe of trees, which reveals recognition on the part of timber corporations and government agencies that the industrial forestry requires public description, is common enough to have been given a name, the beauty strip. Do yourself and the forests a favor. Next time you fly over a once forested region on a clear day, look down. Pay attention to the crazy quilts of clear cuts you see below, to the roads linking clear cuts and fragmenting forests, roads that wash out in heavy rains to scour steam beds and destroy fisheries. Only 5% of native forests still stand in the continental United States. 440,000 miles of logging roads run through national forests alone. The Forest Service claims that there are only 383,000 miles, but the Forest Service routinely lies, keeping double books. A private set showing actual clear cuts and a public set showing some of the same acres as old growth, misleading the public by labeling clear cuts temporary meadows, reducing the stated costs of logging roads by amortizing them over a thousand years and so on. That's more road than the interstate highway system. Enough road to drive from Washington, D.C. to San Francisco 150 times. Only God and the trees themselves know how many miles of the roads fragment the forests. So I'll stop there. This book was written in 2003. So the statistics, at least for the United States, but also for the world, have increased, as in more forests have been cut. And in fact, I've been reading about Brazil is currently suffering quite a big drought, and it's been directly linked to the deforestation of the Amazonian forests. And also, if you, there are a few videos that are available through the Deep Green Resistance website that show about a square mile of land and show how deforestation has, a, it shows photographs of it over the course of some 20 or so years. And you see how they strip through in between lines of trees, cutting them down, sometimes very old trees. But just having read this, what do you think? What are your initial thoughts? Well, the first thing that seems interesting to me, the way the quote opened, is how it's like war in a lot of ways. And I think, or as I heard what you had to say and what you were quoting, I thought about how there are plenty of animal rights activists, and I think that people can very easily empathize with a dog or a cat that's suffering and, you know, maybe subject to chemicals or other things that harm that creature because we can relate to it. It has eyes, it has a nose, it has a mouth. It makes noise, much like us. But the fact that trees, which are living entities... Yeah aren't treated in the same way simply because they don't emote or respond to their environments in a human-like way to me is interesting because if you went up to someone and said, we need to defend trees because trees are important, trees are a source of life, trees themselves do a lot for our environment or our environments, plural, I think a lot of people would laugh and say like, oh, they're just trees, like whatever. People constantly carve on trees and do all other kinds of things. But 
simply because they don't respond as immediately to our actions. I think we treat them as though they're just sort of natural buildings, and they're not. They're sources of life. Plenty of trees are homes for plenty of animals. Plenty of trees nurse trees, or I believe that's the term, when they fall down and another tree grows out of them. Trees, like you mentioned with the Amazonian example, affect a lot of the environment, and I just find it rather upsetting that simply because they look different as a form of life, we don't treat them the same way. It's, you know, in many cases like human racism. It's just sort of the, the mere fact that that thing doesn't look like what I identify as life or as human means that it doesn't really get the same kind of treatment. And I'm sure a lot of people would call that, you know, tree hugger logic or, you know, rather overly emotional. But I think it's rather selfish to say that humans should take priority over all of these forms of life. It's a sad section that you read, but I think it's very important. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, you mentioned tree huggers or people who are animal rights activists. And I've often witnessed that these people are almost made fun of. People say, why is it that you even bother to advocate for these things? Because this is how things always were. And actually, this book talks about how the first written story about taking down forests was the story of Gilgamesh. And I think the story of Gilgamesh, if I'm not mistaken, is that he believed himself to be more than man, more like more so like a god. And in the story, I think that there is also a god of the forests who Gilgamesh ends up ridiculing. And so the god of the forests says that for now on and for thousands of years, you will eat fire, you will drink fire. Or at least that's how I remember the story, more or less. But it is interesting that humanity... Only after reading this book did I really start getting a sense, hearing that there's only 5% of old growth forests left in America. And again, this book was written 12 years ago, so it might be much less now. It's disturbing because you have these beings, these creatures, these life forms, rather, that are different from us, don't look like us, but some of them are thousands of years old. For example, if you go out to California, you have these forests of redwoods, which I was lucky enough to see last summer, and they are amazing they are amazing to look at because they are so big Mm -hmm. apparently all over the world there were also there were trees in in so many different places in israel there were i think lebanon cedars or i think in the middle east there were lebanon cedars in australia i believe that there were large forests and they were all cut down to make cities and to to pursue civilization so yeah i think that it's fascinating and and disturbing to hear this information and i wonder how i can help fix a problem that is so big how can i help solve this problem that already has roads that extend across the united states 150 times over and isn't it interesting you talk about past civilizations and even current civilizations or societies cutting down trees to make room for civilization. I think in that rhetoric alone, it's very telling that on some level, people have for a long time believed trees or other similar pieces of nature, but trees in particular, given the quote and the reading that you gave, are seen as antithetical to what civilization is, that you you couldn't build a city among trees, you couldn't live in a forest, you have to make room for larger and quote-unquote better things. And I find that interesting. We have cities like Venice, which were very much made on top of the water. I think people adapted to the landscape in many ways, although I'm not an expert on Venice. But there isn't much about people living around trees. Instead, we ask them, or rather force them, to adapt to our desires and our vision for the environments that we want to live in. And I just think that's funny. And so people can you know, make their jokes about 
those living in the forests being not as developed or not as civilized as ourselves, but I don't know, tribes that have for centuries or previous centuries lived in forests peacefully and, you know, adapted their lifestyles to the areas they lived in, I think, didn't do nearly as much damage as we have done to the environment, and it's saddening. And I also think, as I'm pondering these ideas, that if we continue this way, or at least humanity continues this way, cutting down trees and sort of promoting deforestation, obviously for our own expansion as a species, on some level I'm hoping there is a point of no return, because if that's true, then we will, as a species, probably get rid of ourselves because we will, you know, either damage the atmosphere or our environment to the point that we are no longer able to sustain human life on Earth. And on some level, I hope that it produces something like a blank slate. I would never wish for the end of humanity, but if in fact we have ruined the planet, or at least temporarily so, I think we deserve whatever is coming for us in terms of environmental disasters or the like. I lament that it's probably going to be a terrible experience to suffer through that, but if we've deforested the earth to that great an extent that we can't actually salvage what's left, I think in many ways we sort of deserve whatever's going to happen. Yeah, I think you're totally right. I don't think that it's so much, I mean, I think in another time I might say that might be a pessimistic point of view, but I think that you're right. I think it is, it's a realistic point of view that if we have damaged the world, the earth so much that we can't live on it, then yeah, we do in a way deserve what's coming for us. At the same time, I do think that we are at a point, granted it's 2015, industrial civilization has existed for as long as it has, I do think that, you know, there's that saying that says the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The <laughs> yeah. next best time is right now. That's a good quote. And so I love that quote. I, I think it's great. You know, there are a lot of quotes these days, but you can just read up on the Internet. But I think that one's particularly pertinent for this case. I'm going to talk about on the next chapter. I'm just going to read a few paragraphs about indigenous people. The chapter is called Forest Dwellers. We're talking about the indigenous those who live on the land that their ancestors lived on and died on, going back so many generations that the distinction is lost between those who live on the land and the land itself. We're talking about those whom we have never gotten to know and who have never fit our self-serving stereotype that they are beastly, savage, primitive, somehow subhuman, living lives that are, quote, nasty, brutish, and short. This notion is self-serving because it reinforces the conceit that these people would be better off if we civilize them, take them, by force if necessary, out of their childlike ways to live as adults. As Ronald Reagan put it, maybe we made a mistake in trying to maintain Indian cultures. Maybe we should not have humored them in that, wanting to stay in that primitive lifestyle. Maybe we should have said, no, come join us, be citizens along with the rest of us. Conveniently left unsaid is the theft of their land and its ultimate despoliation. Nor do the indigenous live romantic lives wandering about picking a few berries now and then. They have serious long-term relationships with the plants and animals with whom they share their landscape. Ray Raphael, who has written extensively on the concept of wilderness, has said, Native Americans interacted with their environment on many levels. Fortunately, they did so in a sustainable way. They hunted, they gathered, and they fished using methods that would be sustainable over centuries and even millennia. They did not alter their environment beyond what could sustain them indefinitely. They did not farm, but they managed the environment. But it was different from the way that people try to manage it now, because they stayed in relationship with it. 
Theft of indigenous land is not ancient history, something that only happened a long time ago, something to express our regrets over as we continue to profit from their land. It happens today, all over the planet. Anywhere there are indigenous people living traditionally in forests, they are being threatened, harassed, arrested, dispossessed, killed, and their forests are being cut down. Here are a few current examples among far too many. Africa. The Bayanga Wood Company deforests the homeland of the Ba'aka, pygmies of the Central African Republic. The Ba'aka are forced into settlement camps at the fringes of their dying forests. The transnational timber corporations Rougier, French, Danzer, German, Feldmeyer, German, Wonenman, also German, and the Dutch-Danish-German consortium Boplek deforest the Congo. Pan-African paper mills, Rapley Timber, and Tim Sales Limited are entering and destroying the forests of the Ojiek people of Kenya, who are being evicted from where they have lived, hunted, and gathered honey forever. In 1967, the World Bank decided that the Gishwadi forest, home to the Batwa pygmies, should be cleared to use for potato farming and cattle raising. The Batwa were not, of course, consulted. As a 61-year-old Batwa says, We were chased out of our forest, which was our father because it provided us with food through gathering and hunting. The state chased us out of the forest, and we had to settle in the fringes, where we die of starvation. All the development projects that were carried out in the Gishwadi forest have done nothing for us, and no Batwa has even received the benefit of a job. The genocide continues. A 2002 news report, not from the corporate press, of course, but from the human rights organization Survival International, stated that the Botswana government denied the Ghana and Gui Bushmen, still in the central Kalahari game reserve, their only means of communication with the outside world, and turned back Bushmen, bringing them essential supplies of food and water. Government officials see solar-powered radio transceivers provided by Survival International for the Bushmen communities. They also told two Bushmen bringing food and water to the beleaguered communities, whose supplies were cut off by the government last week, that entry to their ancestral lands was forbidden. The two were later allowed to deliver the food and water, but were told that in the future they would have a special permit or pay to enter the reserve. The Central Kalahari Game Reserve was set up in the 1960s as a home for the Ghana and Gui Bushmen, whose ancestral lands include the reserve area. Yet since the mid-1980s, the Botswana government has waged a campaign of harassment to force the Bushmen off the land that is theirs under international law. In past weeks, many of the 700 Bushmen still living in the reserve in the face of this harassment have been forced to leave. And last week, the government terminated supplies of water and food to those who are still resisting. Back to the, quote, developed world, North America. British Columbia granted huge timber concessions to the timber giant Macmillan Bloedel, which made billions of dollars by clear-cutting nearly all of Vancouver Island. In 1999, Mac Blow, as it is commonly known, was bought out by the U.S.-based transnational timber corporation Weyerhaeuser, which had already liquidated forests in Wisconsin, Minnesota, Washington, Oregon, the Philippines, and Indonesia. Weyerhaeuser, like MacBlow before it, is clear-cutting like mad, in part because the First Nations of Canada have never extinguished title to the forests being clear-cut and are suing the Canadian government to exercise their rights to sovereignty over this land, including not allowing it to be cut. The Haida have sued Weyerhaeuser for illegally clear-cutting their land in the Queen Charlotte Islands. Guja, chief of the Haida in British Columbia, said about Weyerhaeuser, They've come and wiped out one resource after another. We've been watching the logging barges leave for years and years, and we have seen practically nothing for Haida. South America. 
the Guarani living in forests in Argentina do not believe land can belong to anyone. How can human beings, who are only passing through life, be owners? The Mokona S.A. Forestry Company, which is not a human being, but a corporation, a legal fiction, is cutting down their forests. The company offered each community 74 acres on which to live. The Guarani rejected the possibility that the land could have any owner and found it absurd that they were being offered 74 acres of those communal lands where their ancestors had lived and where they themselves were already living. Land they were, according to their worldview, borrowing from their children. The corporation raised the offer to about 500 acres and continues to cut. Now, this passage is striking, again, because it was written 12 years ago, but it makes clear, or at least it clarifies a little bit, how uneven this battleground, as I'll call it, is. If it is truly that we are waging war against nature and forestry, we being industrialized civilization, our enemy, quote-unquote, or at least our opponent, their voice is also being cut out. Their memory is also being cut out. Their way of seeing the world and existing with the world is being cut out, forced out so that everybody can have wood floors or at least have timber in all the ways that it can be used. So I, again, I'd like your response to this wall of text, as you said once. Absolutely. Well, one thing that stuck out to me very immediately was the quotation about the Native Americans having a relationship with the land. They had sustainable fishing practices because they just sort of understood they didn't farm. Rather, they sort of got what they needed or took what they needed from the land. And I think they did that in a very humble and non-greedy way. And I suspect that one thing that worked for them is that they weren't doing a lot of this consciously. They weren't keeping track of things. They were just operating in what I suspect was a very symbiotic relationship with the land. And I'm sure, again, people would sort of scoff and say, tree hugger or whatever, but I would encourage said people to think carefully about it and what it actually means to have a relationship with something versus maintaining something. And I think, you know, very similarly, people that have relationships with their children might be better off than those who try to maintain their children. Very similarly, I think, Nowadays, if we are trying to maintain certain lands, maybe we're not going about it in the right way because we don't have that relationship with that land. And maybe it's something that can't be easily rekindled. But I do think if we legitimately tried in some way to dialogue, if you will, with our natural environment and surroundings and sort of keep track of what's going on in a very sensible way, I think we might have a better approach to how to live in a more symbiotic way with nature because I think harvesting and other verbs that we use for our interactions with nature show, I guess, how selfish we are and how self-centered or self-concerned, which is valid to a point. I think self-survival is important, but I also think we need to be aware of you know, things like you said. And I find a lot of that quotation talking about how some people can't imagine owning certain lands I think it's interesting because I think we often especially at least in a western or an American sense talk about land and property in that way we consider what we own we try to expand our ownership of things and we try to possess and control or maintain as it were as much land as we possibly can because I think we see it as an extension of ourselves and I hope that future generations will have certain natural reserves left to appreciate spaces without human influence, if possible. But those are just some of my thoughts. What do you think? I think that this is important information to know. For me, I'm happy to have read these first few chapters and to be able to spread this information because I think 
one of the problems or one of the issues of our modern society with computers and whatnot is that although we have a lot of information, a lot of that information is diluted or too much or confusing and overwhelming. So hopefully this reaches out to someone in our audience or to multiple people in our audience who choose to then tell another friend and another friend and spread awareness about how how we live and how perhaps the way we live is not so sustainable. And I'd like to encourage critical thinking about how other people once perceived the world and how along with nature and our woods and the other animals who aren't humans on this earth disappearing, there are also worldviews and perspectives that are slowly dying. Or when I say slowly dying, I mean at the rate of 150 species per day, more or less. So I think it's important to think about it and then start doing something. And communication, I think, is the first step towards that goal. So that's that's what I have to say. So to our audience members, what do you think about this? Is this the first time you've heard about deep green resistance? What do you think about these statistics? Would you like to read more or have a deeper conversation about this? If you'd like to communicate with us, please reach out. Our Facebook is Stride and Saunter. You can reach us on Twitter at Stride and Saunter. Reach us via email at strideandsaunter at gmail.com or visit our website, strideandsaunter.com. And... I will be sure to include some links so that people can find and maybe even purchase Strange Like War if they want to read along and actually understand on a deeper level what we're talking about. I personally, given what you read, would like to read it at some point in the future. And of course, as always, we thank you all for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off. And this is Hector Marrero. Think about how trees give us the oxygen we breathe. Breathe deep. <laughs>